And now, it's time for the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show with Snowden Bishop. Listen in as Snowden interviews cannabis industry pioneers, marijuana experts, policymakers, medical practitioners, patients, and other amazing individuals with compelling stories to share. It all happens right now. Here's the Cannabis Reporter, Snowden Bishop. Hi, and welcome back to the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. I'm Snowden Bishop. I'm happy you could join us. You know, it's hard to believe that it's been nearly five years since we launched the Cannabis Reporter online, and more than three years since we began recording this show. For us, this topic has become so normalized to the point where it's easy to forget that there's still a stigma associated with cannabis. It's even harder to imagine how it's still entirely inaccessible in more than a dozen states, even for medical use. It's also hard to believe that big banks are still arbitrarily closing accounts of sizable, legitimate, and legal cannabis businesses, despite the Safe Banking Act, which was the legislation that was passed last year in the House specifically to address the problem of interstate banking. Just the other day, a friend who owns an industrial hemp technology company told me that J.P. Morgan Chase just closed all of his corporate accounts, including all of his corporate credit cards, not more than a week after PayPal cut him off. This despite the fact that hemp has been legal to grow in the U.S. since the passage of the 2018 Farm Bill, and his company actually specializes in industrial hemp building materials. It would seem that these arbitrary actions are made out of an abundance of caution on behalf of the companies that are doing it, albeit entirely unnecessary. And when it comes to federally regulated banks, they're guided by federal laws, but most are unaware of the recent policy reforms. And the reason for that is just a simple lack of education. There's also still a stigma that bars people from really going out of their way to learn about it. But that's why we're here. Stigma exists in darkness, and cannabis is not a topic that gets a lot of airplay in mainstream media. That drives home the importance of outlets that do shed light on the topic, not just to educate bankers who are operating under arcane laws, but to normalize the topic so that people are interested enough to actually go and learn about it. Dr. Sanjay Gupta was actually among the first to delve into the topic of cannabis on his groundbreaking series called Weed, which began airing on CNN several years ago. The fact that he's a doctor and chief medical correspondent for the network enabled him to engage skeptical audiences far more effectively than, say, a cannabis culture enthusiast. It certainly generated a lot more widespread acceptance, and since it first aired, more than a dozen states have actually passed legalization measures. We've come a long way since then, but the more we learn about cannabis, the more we realize there's so much more to learn. That's why it's incumbent upon us in the media to continue to shine a spotlight on cannabis and keep the conversation going. That's the topic of today's show, and I'm really excited to introduce our guest, Lewis Goldberg, who is doing just that as host of the Green Rush podcast. 
For more than 20 years, he's been a thought leader in public affairs, implementing programs designed to build businesses with a campaign mentality. He's worked in national, state, and local politics, including for former President Bill Clinton and then First Lady Hillary Clinton. As a managing partner at the East Coast PR firm KCSA, he founded the group's cannabis practice, And thanks to his weekly podcast, The Green Rush, he's become recognized as one of the most effective strategic thinkers in this growing industry. So, Lewis, thank you. I'm so glad you're here, and I'm really looking forward to speaking with you. Thank you for doing this. Um, You know, I appreciate you giving us the platform. Oh, gosh, it's my pleasure. It really is. And I'm excited, actually, because it's rare for me to interview people who do what I do. And I have to tell you, I was interviewed on KTAR, which is probably one of the biggest talk stations here in Phoenix. And it was so strange to be on the other side of the microphone. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, I found myself wanting to ask questions. (laughs) I had to think about what I was doing. But yeah, so it's fun. And I love your show, too. And some of the guests that you have on are are pretty interesting. Also, I wanted to mention that you had you celebrated your 100th episode this month, didn't you? Or last month? We did. Yep. That's awesome. Congratulations on that. We had our 100th last year. It's a big deal. It is a big deal. It's like having a 50th birthday or something. (laughs) Oh, thanks, because that's coming up for me in April. So, you know. (laughs) Happy birthday in advance. And yeah, so this is great. I wanted to pick your brain about the importance of this medium for educating people. And one of the things that I noticed is that oftentimes we are preaching to the choir a bit because people who search for cannabis will find shows like ours. Green Rush is your platform and I, you have a lot of corporate guests and I imagine that it's, it's more business driven than consumer driven. Would, that, would I be right about that? Well, so we describe the show as the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. So it's a, it, it tends to be more business-driven. You know, the thesis of the show was kind of like a, a college course where it's a 101. If you're interested in the, the business of cannabis, it's a really good way to get a primer on that. But if you know about the cannabis, it's a graduate-level conversation. So it is, it is designed to be accessible to anybody who wants to learn. Um, and it is designed to give real deep insight into um, the issues that are are being addressed in the industry and the people who are addressing those is- issues. And, and we really try to give those people the platform to reveal themselves as, as individuals. Because, you know, if you're an investor, you don't only invest based on the you know, the balance sheet of a company. You're also buying a management team. And it's rare that these managers, CEOs, CFOs, and the like are given a platform to relax into a conversation. And that's what Ann and I really try to do is give them that that relaxed opportunity to be themselves. Right. And Ann is your co-host. And I actually like, like, I like the dynamic of having two people bouncing off ideas. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, and I like the fact that if someone's not in the cannabis industry, they could really glean a lot from listening to the show because, I mean, cannabis is like any other 
uh, sector, it's a business now. It's, it's it a, is. It's one of the fastest growing industries in our economy right now, and it's pretty exciting, even though it's still federally illegal. But I wanted to pick your brain, though, about the importance of getting this information out to eliminating the stigma that is still in the background associated with cannabis, and especially for people who are looking to come into this business as an investor or an entrepreneur. What are your thoughts about that? Well, I, I th- so the first thing is um, cannabis is a huge industry as is right now, right? It's a 75 to $100 billion a year industry already. It's just the vast majority of it is illicit. So, you know, what we are seeing is a conversion market take place. Like we are converting, um, you know, a market that, that, you know, there's massive and it's in all 50 states. Um, but it's been unregulated, untaxed. Um, and right now what we are in the process of doing, and, and I say we, because even though I don't grow the product or sell the product or process it, I, you know, I help, I help tell those stories through my my agency and and also through my podcast. We're trying to explain all of the the complexities around cannabis. Um, you know, if you look at the vaping crisis, for example, this first of all, I hate to call it a crisis. It's it is a recognition that the illicit market is still an unbelievably vibrant, um, uh, aggressive component to the overall industry but the the issue is okay so somebody wants to just outright ban you know flavored vapes well by the way they've been banned for for since 1970 you know when the controlled substances act was passed and that hasn't stopped people from consuming them so if you're going to ban it in california or you're going to ban it in colorado or oregon all you're going to do is give more power to the illicit market than already is there um and if you want to just you know regulate it then how do you regulate it in a way that doesn't further disenfranchise people of color who have been over-indexed for targeting by law enforcement forever. You know, it is such a complex issue um, and and giving people who are part of the solution the opportunity in a long-form conversation like this one to go into those complexities is really important. Um, I, I think anybody who does a podcast and i think podcasts are a great vehicle for this because they don't have to be three second sound bites you know i work in a public relations firm i'm one of the owners i teach my clients to speak in 25 second sound bites because that's what works on tv but in podcasts i get frustrated when a guest gives me a sound bite i want them to go into the depth of the detail of the issues that we're addressing because that's where the real answers are. It's not in the, the, you know, the manicured soundbite. It's in the, you know, the nuance. You know, I couldn't agree more. And you mentioned a really good point. A lot of people have asked me, why do you do an hour long podcast? And, you know, one reason, of course, is that I have hour long blocks on the network radio stations that air the show. So you have to kind of stick to that format. But Mm -hmm. online, so many people fear that doing anything more than a half an hour is going to lose a lot of the audiences that are 
accustomed to hearing those sound bites and getting their information in three minute videos in social media. And I think that having that opportunity to really go into depth with someone, it gets so many more nuances of a single issue that way. And, you know, I really do appreciate that. So you're absolutely right. The other thing, too, is shedding light on an issue that was in the darkness for so long is really the only way to keep people from being afraid of it. And I wonder what your thoughts are about this, because there are a lot of people who are still opposed to the industry because they have a lack of information or because they've been conditioned to believe that it's, you know, it's bad <laughs> somehow, you know, or if they're a little bit older, they were raised in that devil's week. Just say no error. Yeah. Right? I mean, you know, we've all been, we've all been, um, I hate to use the word, but inoculated um, with the, you know, the, the Nancy Reagan, just say no, the, the reefer madness from the thirties. And it's, you know, it was intentionally done, you know, cannabis was called marijuana to, to, you know, demonize um, uh, Mexicans, um, you know, in the thirties, it was always cannabis before that it was never marijuana and, and, you know, language matters. And we, you know, in any form of relating to the media have a responsibility to be very careful with the words that we choose so that we don't, continue to perpetuate stereotypes. And a good example of that is calling the illicit market the black market, right? You wouldn't think that that's a big deal, but it is a big deal. It was intentionally called the black market because it targeted African-Americans. You know, it is the illicit market, the illegal market, the unregulated market. You call it the black market, you have an image of, you know, somebody who is of color doing something illegal. We have to be really careful with the language that we use whenever we talk about any components of this industry because it is so fraught. And I know that some people are going to think, oh, you know, he's a bleeding heart liberal or, or whatever. It's not that. It's I'm aware of the history of this industry and the the like I keep saying, the nuance about it. And you know, Richard Nixon was very, very devious and smart in the language that he used to attack this industry. And it has been perpetuated, um, you know, from Ronald Reagan, even Bill Clinton, um, you know, with his saying, I never inhaled. That's that's a, a bunch of hooey. You know, he may he maybe never exhaled, but he definitely inhaled or he ate edibles. <laughs> well, it, and and I think that there's there's just so much um, falsity out there. It's almost a farce, mm -hmm. and and yeah, and and people are being pigeonholed into these sort of um, tribal corners because of the language that's being used. So I agree, we need to be careful about how we state things. But I think it's also a matter of awareness. And, you know, it, it's not a liberal issue. It's not a conservative thing. It's, it's you know, even though um, cannabis has always sort of been associated with a liberal uh, agenda, 
And, but it's interesting. And I saw that you interviewed someone from Acreage not too long. Well, that was your mm-hmm. 100th episode, right? And yeah, Kevin you, Murphy, the CEO of Acreage Holdings. Right. And it's my understanding that the former Republican Speaker of the House, John Boehner, is sitting on the board. Now, I found that to be really fascinating when he first announced that he was going into the cannabis industry because so many people had associated the Republican platform with the Just Say No era. And you would think that opening up this market, this free market of cannabis and all of the opportunity that that could bring, you know, not to mention hemp, but, you know, the the freedom to be able to operate and make money on a harmless plant in a capitalistic society seems like that should have always been the agenda of the Republican Party or or at least those who consider themselves to be uh, fiscal conservatives, which I've always been. I've always considered myself that way. So I've always found it interesting that, you know, it's been associated with riffraff and um, weed being associated with hippies and the black market being you know, targeting the, the African-American community or people of yep. color. So, yeah, you raised an interesting point there. Well, well the, po- the polling also shows that it is a non, a, it's, it's not bipartisan, it's nonpartisan. You know, consumption rates amongst conservatives are the same as amongst liberals. The consumption rates among Caucasians are the same as amongst people of color. Um, you know, so it, this is not a black or white thing. This is not a left or right thing. Um, this is just a right thing, as in right. the right well, thing to do. And let me just interject something there. Yeah, it, the the usage is the same across the board, and it's nonpartisan in terms of what the potential of the cannabis industry. Um, mm-hmm. But but it is a very divisive issue when it comes to prosecuting crimes associated with cannabis. And like you said, you know, it does target the communities of color and the lower income neighborhoods um, of Caucasian users. Yep. And and that disparity has been just it's been an egregious miscarriage of justice, in my opinion, you know, and, and I've heard a lot of people say that, actually. So I don't own that phrase, but well, it is. The statistics also are, are incontrovertible, right? I'm a white guy. I'm almost 50. Um, I, I work in New York City. I live in New Jersey. And if I was stopped by a police officer for smoking a joint going down the street, most probably I wouldn't even get a ticket. If I was African-American, I'm four times as likely to get arrested as 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 a white guy. So um, and there are lots of reasons why behind that it comes to the the way that police um, are, are compensated, you know, the way that the statistics are collected, um, the way that the DEA actually provides um, excess military equipment to police departments across the country. I mean, the war on drugs has been the biggest boondoggle in the history of the United States. It is the most corrupt, um, ill-guided decision that we have ever made as a society. Um, and I, you know, and one of the cool things about my podcast is I get to talk to the people who are the advocates. You know, like one of my favorite people in the entire industry is a guy named Chris Crane, who is the president of a multi-state operator called Forefront. Um, Chris was a founder of students for sensible drug policy which is the largest 
um, college-based advocacy organization out there, bigger than the college Dems, bigger than the college Republicans, you know, and their goal is to end the war on drugs. Well, Chris helped found that and, and has since, you know, morphed from being an advocate into one of the smartest operators in the space. And he's a client of mine and he is, and has since become a friend. And I learn from him every time I talk to him, whether it's on the podcast or just talk to him about the, this intersection between the, this tension between the suits and the stoners, right? I mean, there is this tension between the historic illicit market participants who are trying their hardest to get regulated and legal and the suits, the John Boehners of the world, who are looking at this as a phenomenal market opportunity um, and don't have either an understanding or an acknowledgement of the history of what's happened in the industry. Now, when John, when, when Speaker Boehner you know, announced that he was joining then the advisory board and now the board of directors of Acreage, a lot of the historic market participants were absolutely furious at him because he was somebody who was a drug warrior of the first rank um, when he was in Congress, you know, and he was somebody who had said he would never consider cannabis and he still has said he, he won't consume. Um, and they think that his decision to join was based solely on, on, you know, opportunity. I don't care. We need everybody to be pro-cannabis regulation and legalization. Everybody, left, right, center, purple, brown, black, I don't care who they are, they need to be in favor of this as quickly as possible to avoid the issues like we're having with the vape issue, to avoid people being arrested for nonviolent drug crimes, to, to make sure that people are given access to the plant from a medicinal purpose as quickly as possible. The, the longer it remains in the shadows, the more people who are going to be continually hurt by those shadows. I couldn't agree more. And you know what? He deserves kudos for being in the industry more so than he would deserve any kind of criticism for having advocated against it for so long in a, in a position of power. And, you know, I think we have to take the wins when we get them <laughs> and we have to acknowledge yep. those wins. You know, uh, for example, you know, even if people criticize the president for his wall policy or this or that, you know, you got to give him kudos when he actually uh, signs into law a criminal justice reform act that was long overdue. You know what I mean? So no matter what you feel about someone's politics, it's really a good idea to acknowledge their compassionate acts when they do happen and because otherwise you deter others from making that change and you keep people in their tribal corners fighting against something that makes no sense. <laughs> so I, I, I agree. Yeah. <laughs> I totally agree. Yeah. Wow. Well, you know what? I think that, you know, the shedding the light in the shadows is really important and it will it will stay important as long as cannabis is still prohibited substance in Schedule 1, which, is, of course, it never should have been. And you and I both know that. And most people know that by now. It's a harmless plant. But let's go back to... No, it's more than a... Forget a harmless plant. It's, it's a, it has legit medicinal value. Oh, yeah. And the, the, the crazy thing is that because it's been Schedule 1, there's been no research into it. So, you know, there's this CBD craze in the country now, right? Everywhere you turn, some sort of consumer packaged good has you know, cannabidiol in it. Well, I would love to know what the actual 
quantities that you should be taking are? We don't know. Right? We don't know other than, than um, Epidiolex, which is the only FDA-approved uh, cannabis-derived drug, you know, what, those, you know, what the, the dosages are. That's absurd. Absolutely absurd. It you know, is absurd. There's, been more, there's more research done on the medical benefits of LSD, and we can talk about psychedelics some other time, than on cannabis, right? I mean – and there is tremendous, you know, there's tremendous medical benefits to that stuff, to, to psychedelics. You know, the, the, the Schedule One designation for things like cannabis and, and psilocybin and other, other plant-based medicines has hurt millions and millions of people in the United States alone, let alone the billions of people who should have access to these drugs around the world. And, and they are all illegal globally because of us. If if we had not scheduled all of these drugs in the 70s, they would be there would be tremendous research done globally and we would not be facing the epidemics that we are in mental health, in um in in hypertension, all of these other issues that can be addressed by by these plants. Well, not to mention, you know, opiate addiction, <laughs> which, you know. Yeah. It has declined slightly since cannabis has been legalized in the states where it's legal, but Oh. No, fifteen percent. You look at at the statistics in Colorado. You know the the amount of um, of opiate scripts are down something like fifteen percent in that state since it was adult since it went adult use. I mean, it, it is absurd. And 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 you know we're talking on the radio and on the po- on a podcast right now. And I do a weekly podcast. That's the real value of this form of communication is because this is an issue that you know, is sorely under discussed in the mainstream media. There's not enough room for a nuanced conversation about the medical benefits of this stuff. Like you'll get one-off stories, but you get, you know, I do an hour every week with somebody that is related to this industry. It could be Mike Tyson talking about his experience as being a canapreneur, you know, going from being a boxer to, to, to Tyson Ranch, to Congressman Earl Blumenauer or former Congressman um, Dana Rohrabacher, Democrat, far, far left Democrat, far right Republican you know, talking about the regulatory structures of this, you know, it is, it, for me, it has been the most uh, fulfilling thing I have done in my career because I have gotten to learn from people who are significantly smarter than me about an issue that I, I hope is clear that I'm pretty passionate about. Well, you're clearly passionate about it and rightly so. I mean, it's a, it, cannabis is one of those things I've been very passionate myself about because I am convinced that it, it can save us on so many levels from, you know, hemp and climate change from cannabis and, mm-hmm. and the human body and optimizing human health and all of that. And the importance of knowledge about this plant, it, it, it's, it can never be overstated. And, you know, the importance of what it can do for our economy and for, you know, the future it's unbelievable. Oh, it's unbelievable. Unbelievable. You know, the taxation, the tax opportunities for local communities is, is you know, it's off the hook. Um, but the amount of money that, that states can generate from a well-regulated, well-taxed industry really can be transformational. Um, and 
you know, it, it, I look at what's going to happen in New Jersey, what is going to happen in New York State, from just from a tax basis, um, and you know, states that have hugely underfunded pension commitments will be able to, to hopefully, you know, if they're smart about how you, they use these tax revenues fund those pension commitments, make sure that teachers' pensions are protected, to make sure that police and firefighters' pensions are protected. It's also going to change the cost structures of local law enforcement, right? If, if a police officer doesn't have to spend any time looking for, uh, you know, busting somebody for smoking a joint, they can spend their time actually dealing with real crime and, and helping, you know, getting back to protect and serve which is really what the thesis of a police department is. And it's, and it, and a lot of these men and women who wear the blue, not by choice, but by policy have had to make, you know, decisions that they probably wouldn't want to make. You're so right. You know, I interviewed Steve D'Angelo a couple months ago and we talked about yep. this issue. He just started an, a nonprofit organization called last prisoner project and mm -hmm. what I found really astonishing from that conversation was how many people are still in jail because of cannabis or nonviolent cannabis prosecution. And there are even people still serving life sentences, even in states where cannabis is fully legal for adult use. I mean, it's absurd. And they keep losing their appeals because, yeah, they were guilty of breaking the law at the time. But does cannabis possession or use warrant a lifetime sentence in jail because of either mandatory minimums or three strike laws? No. And not all of these have been commuted. I know that during the Obama administration, he commuted a lot of sentences for nonviolent drug crimes from possession of heroin all the way to just a simple joint and everything in between. But there's still so many people who were not on the list for consideration. And that needs to change. I think that as soon as they deschedule cannabis, and I think it's a matter of when, not if, they need to start going back into the records of these people, even if they were arrested three times for having a joint in their pocket, and most of them are people of color, and start releasing them immediately and making reparations so that they can get a foothold into the, you know, into the economy. Into the market. Into yeah, the market, back, I mean, yeah. To, you, know, the, you know, people who have cannabis arrests more often than not are banned from being market participants when they come out. You That's know, right. You, it, it's, a, it's, it's wrong. It's yeah. just wrong. You're so right about that. And, and they, have a, they have a wealth of knowledge, <laughs> especially those yes. who are, you know, growing and dealing. They know their market. They know their stuff. And, you know, what kind of valuable resource could they offer to cannabis entrepreneurs who need people who really understand the plant and what it can do? And so, yeah, it's absurd. I know that um, in so many states where it's legal for medical or adult use, they prohibit people with criminal records from obtaining a license. And why? You know, it just, it makes no sense to me. But this goes back to the importance of this platform that we have. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I feel blessed to have it to be able to get this word out. And, but for people who aren't already familiar with it, how do we go about piquing their interest if they wouldn't search for cannabis online? 
Oh, boy. So, you know, building an audience is tough. Um, you know, we we just published our 100th episode. Um, and, you know, the audience builds on itself slowly. Um, you know, the what we have done intentionally is to bring on, you know, cultural icons like Ziggy Marley, like Mike Tyson, um, like Jay Muse, who is the actor, who's Jay and Silent Bob. Um, you know, we've had film directors on, you know, we really try and get, you know, at least one out of every 10 episodes to be cultural and not just cannabis and or cannabis business. Um, you know, the people are going to find this the same way that they find the plant. You know, they will feel like they need to look for something. And the average consumer hopefully is going to listen to to your show or my show and get something out of it. Um, you know, podcasts are a unique industry. There are something like 90,000 podcasts, and most of them have less than 100 listeners per episode. You know, we're in the thousands of listeners an episode. I wish we were at the tens of thousands. Um, you know, our goal was never to be Joe Rogan. I'm, I am, you know, not Joe Rogan. I'm not nearly funny enough, and I have way more hair than he does. Um, but you know, the the goal has always been <laughs> to funny. build a platform. <laughs> yeah, I, I we say, you know, we describe the Green Rush as you know the intersection of cannabis, the capital markets, and culture. And a lot of bad dad jokes, because that's what I do. Um, bad dad jokes. <laughs> that's funny. I, I, I've had a few of those myself. But, you know, that's an interesting thing that you bring up. Because we're on terrestrial radio, we don't go into the culture so much. And, you know, I think that, that that's where you can, you know, online, I think that that's incredibly valuable. And it's great that you've been able to get some of these cultural icons on your show. Um, we've had a couple, but, you know, I, I try not to get into so much of the cultural vernacular that would have these conservative radio, radio stations uh, ban me <laughs> from, Well, you know, look, I've been, I've been good. I have not cursed. I mean, there is a ton of cursing on my show, um, you know, because that's how people speak. And I want my guests to feel comfortable being who they are, you know, I, 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 you know, I'm not, you know, Mike Wallace coming up to somebody and trying to, to dig and get dirt. I really want to have a conversation just like you and I are having right now where people can reveal who they are, give acts, give information that, that the listener probably would not have had before. I mean, I try not to ask the same questions um, that, a guest has been asked a million times, you know, Ann Donahoe, who is my co-host and I, and Nick Opich, um, who is our producer and Shay Gunther is the producer. We all do real research on the guests to, to try and understand who they are as people, not only who they are as cannabis market participants. Uh, and, and, you know, I just want to have a good, good conversation. Like ideally the audience is listening and it's like they just they're at a Starbucks and they're overhearing something really interesting or they're at a, a diner, you know, somewhere having a cup of coffee and they're overhearing a really fascinating conversation. That's what I want because that's what I want to hear. Like I, I want, I want to, he I actually go back and listen to every episode after it's published 
because when I'm in the conversation, I lose a lot of what is being said because I'm so interested in, in having a good conversation that sometimes I don't hear everything that the guest is saying. And when I go back and listen, it's like, it, it's like listening to somebody else have this conversation. It's really fun for me. I know Anne winces. You know, some 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 people can't watch themselves if they're an actor or an actress on TV. They can't watch themselves. Others really look to learn. I really go back and look to learn after each episode on, oh, I should have asked this follow up or I should have asked that question. I missed an opportunity there um, because I wasn't. I, something happened in the conversation that took it in a different direction, and that's for me. That's the coolest part about podcasting in general is it is a conversation. If it's done intentionally um, that way, it is really fascinating. And I, and I love podcasts. I listen to them all the time. Yeah, I do too. And um, it's funny, I've never, well, there have been two or three occasions where a guest has asked me to provide them with questions. And I've almost never followed that script because I find that it really impedes the conversation and guests surprise me. You've surprised me. We've talked about things that I wasn't anticipating and that's what's so beautiful Hopefully about it's a it. pleasant surprise. Oh yeah, no, it's it's good. That's why I don't write questions. I'll put I'll put a topic together and you know, I do research ad nauseum. I know my guests inside out and backwards as much as I can derive from public forums like Mr. Google. But if I don't know a guest, I'll make sure that I find out before the episode. And then I just let the guest almost guide the questioning and the conversation and everything else. And I think that that is hospitable for people who are just getting to know this industry or, or they're just cannabis curious and want to understand that this is an important issue and it's uh, something that can be very normalized. It doesn't have to be something people are afraid of or afraid to talk about. I do it from a, from a podcast perspective. We do it differently. We actually do script the questions out and we give them to the guest ahead of time. We don't always, actually, we never follow the script as it is. It's directional, but we want to give, I don't want to surprise the guest. Um, and we do have an intention in every interview of covering certain topics. So if I knew that when I was talking with Kevin um, Murphy from Acreage Holdings, I wanted to talk to him about the the deal with Canopy Growth. And, it, and I was talking to him after Bruce Linton had left Canopy. And I wanted to touch on that a little bit because the relationship between Bruce and Kevin was the crux of how the deal got done. And what does that mean now that the deal is over? Um, but he's a public company CEO and I can't, I don't want to put him in a position where I'm asking him a question about the business and having him reveal something material or not reveal something in a way because it is material. So I don't want to. I don't want to shock or these people. I want to give them the opportunity to have a, a good conversation. You know, like I said, I'm not a journalist. I am a public relations executive, um, and I'm a cannabis market person. Um, so I just want to have a chat, and I want to know what's on. You know, what's inbounds and out of bounds, and that's not what everybody does. I mean, I I think this is a. I love this conversation. I'm having a great time. Um, and I hope your audience is enjoying it. And, and if you like listening to me talk, you should check out the Green Rush podcast. It's on iTunes and Stitcher and Google and wherever else you listen to podcasts. But, 
you know, we, we do try and have a structure. And we also ask um, two questions of every guest uh, because I think they are revelatory about who they are as people. I always ask about failure. Um, I don't believe, and, and we tend to interview people who are successful, um, but I don't think that you are successful by accident. And I think most people are successful because they learn from their mistakes. And I want to know about the biggest mistakes that people have made. And it is a really challenging question for most people because it is very rare that somebody is truly disclosed as to the mistakes that they have made in their life, whether they be business or personal, and how it has impacted them as they've gone forward. And the people who are most transparent about that are far and away the most interesting people that I've had the opportunity to, to talk with. And some of, the ones, some of them have become friends. You know, I'll give you an example. I'm a big fan of a guy named Matt Gerson, who is the CEO of a company called Foria, which is a California-based um, cannabis company that's focused on women's sexual health. You know, they make lube, suppositories, um, pre-rolls, and, and other things. And Matt is absolutely fascinating. And when I asked him his question, asked him the question about failure, he gave the most honest, authentic answer I think I've heard yet. Um, and I enjoyed it so much that when I went to LA a couple weeks ago, I, I made sure to spend time with him. And he was that same person face to face as he was on the interview. Uh, and as somebody who has become a friend, um, I've had others who either refused to answer the question or danced around it. And you could tell that they were just not as authentic. And it's, it's a bummer because I want to know who these people are as people. You know, it's not, it's not just talking about the numbers. It's talking about what does this industry mean to you? Why are you involved in it? What can others learn from you? And the other question that we ask is, what is the one story that is not being told by the mainstream media? You know, it, it could be about your company, but more importantly, what is what are we all missing about cannabis? Because these are people who are in the trenches and who know what's going on. And that always is an interesting answer and it always surprises me. It is almost never about themselves. It is it is almost always about an issue that either I haven't thought about or Ann hasn't thought about, um, but they have. And it is the most it's just fun. It's just a great question. That's really great. I'm. I really love that you do that. What's the most common answer about what's not being addressed in the media? Huh. Um, if you had asked me that six months ago, it would have been about veterans access. Um, social equity and social justice are big topics. Um, for the business guys, it's, it's often about 280E, the IRS rule, um, about how you can book cost of business expenses. But it ranges, you know, I mean, it ranges from, you know, issues on traumatic head injuries and the use of cannabis to help treat that or PTSD, or it could be issues on access for um, former athletes. I mean, it really it is a wide, it really, and it, it, it's like as many different strains as there are to the plant, there are answers to that question. 
<laughs> that's that's interesting. Yeah, I I can see that. I can see that. And a lot of those things are, you know, what we can talk about in these forums. And really, it takes a cannabis media person to pull those issues out. And I think that the value of having these platforms is that if people are interested in learning more about those things, I mean, I, I've watched recently, there's been a lot more coverage about cannabis. But again, go back to those three minute sound bites. The segments really don't last that long with the exception of maybe Sanjay Gupta you know, doing his yeah, series. Yeah, he's done a great you know, And that, that opened a lot of doors for people in the industry and it removed that black sheep syndrome of people feeling afraid to talk about it openly in the public and because the stigma has always been so thick you could cut it with a knife and what he did on such a mainstream widely viewed platform was bring cannabis into legitimacy as an issue and I thought that was really fascinating so yeah, uh, he he and and and, it, and you know, if you look at the last couple of weeks, you'll see, you know, sixty minutes did a segment. You, you know, Anderson Cooper did a segment on psychedelics and the work that's being done at Johns Hopkins, which I think is going to have the same type of impact culturally um, that that weed did. The documentary series you're talking about with Sanjay Gupta. You know, it, it, it we are as a society. I think going through a really interesting change in the way that we look at ourselves. Um, and, and I'm not even referring to what's going on in the White House. I'm really referring specifically to health and wellness. And, you know, cannabis is the first thing that, that is um, taking place. But, you know, psilocybin, uh, MDMA, um, uh, ketamine, you know, we are facing a, a mental health crisis in this country. 40% of adults have some form of diagnosed untreated mental disease. It could be depression. It could be anxiety. It's OCD. It's addiction. It's PTSD. These are all issues that cannabis can help address. There are issues that others can help address. And I think that the FDA is finally waking up and saying, okay, this is, if we don't treat this, um, we are going to see the impacts on our society and our culture and our economy grow dramatically. If you just look at the United States alone, um, the, I think it's the Commerce Department estimates that, that we lose $300 billion a year in lost productivity to mental illness. Cannabis can help address that, and so can other other things like like psychedelics that can help address that. And we are now at this this inflection point where we are saying, what do we need to do to get well? If this wasn't working, if criminalizing these molecules for the last forty years has not only not helped us get better and not seen a decrease in consumption pop, you know, statistics. Then maybe we should flip the script and try and regulate it, research it, and use cannabis, use these things to help us all get better. That is absolutely exciting and fascinating to me. And it's, it's, it's what gets me going, to, excuse me, to work every day with a smile. You know, I love yeah. my job because I get to have an influence on this stuff. You know, and you bring up some really good points there. And I, I think that to add to that, what I would say is that a lot of the crises that we're going through in our country right now are, are 
kind of waking people up and making people ask questions you know, about why and looking just at the issue of cannabis or for that matter, any natural plant substance that has been used for euphoric purposes or, you know, Mm -hmm. spiritual purposes or healing purposes, you know, a lot of the information about that has been um, oppressed and it's starting to break open and it's starting to cause people to ask a lot of questions. I saw this Lisa Ling the special that she does on This Is Life, which is, I, I love how she approaches these sort of taboo topics and brings them out into the forefront. But she did an episode on the dangers of benzodiazepines and the anti-anxiety, anti-psychotic, anti-depression, all of those medicines, people don't realize just how addictive they are. And not only that, but how dangerous they are, especially if someone's been on them for more than a couple of weeks and then try to titrate off of them. They, they experience far worse depression, anxiety, and mental crises, you know, suicidal thoughts than they had before they started taking the drug. And so when people start talking openly about these issues that have to do with mental health or that have to do with addiction. It takes the taboo away. It removes that stigma. And we do need to start talking about these things. But more importantly, we need to start examining how the corporate influences in our society have made us sick as a society. You know, the poisons that, that we ingest in our air and our water in our drugs that we take that are prescribed to us by doctors that we trust, you know, we're starting to find that we need to question these things. And all of the crises that are happening politically right now are just sort of a greater metaphor for all the reasons why we need to question what, what is happening. You know, for example, I interviewed an immunologist researcher last week and in that interview, we talked about how the giant pharmaceutical companies were silencing researchers who found serious problems with drugs. And it's not just the opiates, which we know um, was sort of a corrupt way of going about informing the public about this huge crisis that we have right now. But she was talking about the polio vaccine. They had manufactured several million doses of this polio vaccine that contained a live polio virus instead of what it was supposed to have, which was the dormant pathogen that builds your immune system against polio. And they wound up giving 44 million people polio between the 1950s and 1960s and were never held to account. They knew that medicine was tainted. A scientist who pointed it out was actually fired and humiliated publicly. And we never questioned it because we've got this false sense of trust and we believe that our systems work. Well, you know what? We're waking up now to the fact that these systems don't. And if we don't ask the right questions, we are going to continue to annihilate the human race. And so cannabis, I think, and what you do and what I'm doing, I think that the importance of it is to shed light on some of these issues that people just have not questioned before because we're pulling a substance that was corruptly made illegal into the spotlight 
for the sake of improving human health, improving our environment, improving the way that we treat mental illness and, and serious disease. So not to mention preventative medicine. So <laughs> sing it. I'm all in. Where can I vote for you? <laughs> Thank you. I want to, you know, I, I just, this is what gets me up in the morning like you, but also this is what keeps me up at night. You know, it, it, yes. it and once you start opening that Pandora's box, and I'm sure you probably experienced this too, but once you start opening that Pandora's box, you can't really put it back in and and not think about it. <laughs> so hopefully we're helping people to open their own Pandora's box so that they can start asking these questions and exploring ways to make their lives healthier and more profitable and all of that stuff. So, you know, from one fellow uh, uh, radio host or podcaster to another, um, I have to say kudos to you and thank you for doing what you do because it is a public service. Cool. Thank you. I appreciate that. I, I you know, I, thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. You're welcome. So, oh, we've covered a lot of territory here today. And I just want to ask, what else would you like our audiences to know? And these are, you know, people who listen on the radio are not necessarily the same people who search for cannabis online. Um, mm -hmm. What would be your parting message? Go out and get stoned. It will make you a happier person. I, I know it's a silly, it may sound frivolous, um, but if you have not tried the plant, don't be afraid of it. If you have tried the plant, share it with somebody. And that's one of the coolest things about the, the cannabis community is it is truly a community. Um, you know, unlike other intoxicants, you know, you, cannabis is, a, is really all about sharing with each other. Um, and it's it's sharing everything. It's sharing itself. It's sharing the stories. It's sharing the experience. Um, it, it really, it's a wonderful. It is a wonderful thing to to be a part of. And you know, as I approach my fiftieth birthday, I really it, it amazes me every day what I do for a living, which is this. I get to talk about this every day, all day, to people who are interested in it, and. I, you know, I, I, I can't, I like, I pinch myself going, this is really my job. Um, and it's really freaking cool. It is really cool. And it's such a great industry. And there's a sense of everyone being in it together because it did yep. start from prohibition and we're trying to right a wrong <laughs> that has been done in history. So yeah, no, it's, it's fantastic. And for people who don't enjoy the euphoric experience, what would you tell them? I would tell them that maybe that part of the plant isn't for you, um, that, you know, you should talk to a medical professional about the value of CBD. Um, and, but if you're going to use CBD, make sure it's full spectrum because there's something called the entourage effect, which means you need just a wee bit of THC to activate the receptors in your body so that they can properly process the CBD. Um, and if, you know, if you don't enjoy the euphoric effect and others around you do, smile and let them have their fun because it's not hurting anybody. And then what about people who, are, who criticize the plant? Let me put it that way. The, what would you tell the people who really don't enjoy, they've tried it, they don't enjoy it, but you know, they still are sort of critical about the plant. What would you say to them? It's really hard to be critical of something that 
is in nature. Being critical of the cannabis plant is like being critical of a tulip or an apple tree or a potato. You know, this is a plant that has that we as a species have intentionally cultivated and propagated for thousands of years. The same way that we've done it with apples, the same way that we've done it with potatoes. You know, we we as a species you know, have co-evolved with this plant. So it may not be for you, but it is for we, for all of us. Um, and, you know, I respect anybody's decision on whether or not to consume. I respect anybody's decision on how they want to use it. Um, I don't respect somebody telling me what to do with my body. You know, what, what I ingest and how I use my body is really up to me and it's not up to them. So um, you, if it's not for you, that's cool. I respect that. And if 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 you want to tell me how to use my body, that I, that I'm not cool with. Yeah. And I think also, you know, just letting people know that our bodies are equipped to process cannabis because we have our endogenous yep. cannabinoid system that with yep. receptors that actually need cannabinoids to function properly. I think that was a big one when I learned that years and years ago and you cannot be critical of something that you don't know enough about so yeah I think you know in addition to that I'd say um, go and be educated and uh, listen yes. to Lewis's podcast you know refer your friends to ours and theirs and you know it's it's just important information but anyway well I'm getting a signal that it is time to start wrapping it up so, Lewis, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a great conversation. I really appreciate it. It's the, we want you on our show because it's only fair for you to have the same experience of being on the other side of the mic as I just did. Thank you. I would absolutely love to join you. You just tell me when and I'll be there. So, once again, it is time to bring yet another show to a close. I'd like to personally thank my guest, Lewis Goldberg, for sharing his insights and knowledge with us today. If you'd like to learn more about his podcast, The Green Rush, please visit us online at thecannabisreporter.com. Click podcast to find today's episode. And there you will find his bio along with a link to his website. We have so many people to thank. First, I'd like to express our gratitude for our partners and radio sponsors, Canisphere Biotech, The Growers Network, and Blue Mountain Energy. We certainly couldn't be doing this without you. I'd also like to thank our production team here at the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show for always making us shine. And of course, it goes without saying just how much we appreciate our programming directors at XRQK Radio Network and Society Bites Radio for distributing our show. And last but not least... Thanks to all of you for listening. I'm Snowden Bishop inviting you to join me again next week, same time, same place, for another episode of the Cannabis Reporter Radio Show. Until we meet again, be safe, stay informed, share what you've learned, and make it a great day. Evergreen is calling.